turn to Romans chapter 3, Romans 3. All right, for just a minute, I want you to imagine if you have come down with a very serious illness, you actually are sitting in front of the doctor, and he says, listen, I got some bad news for you. Uh, you've got a disease, it's highly, it's rare, and it's terminal, and there is nothing that we can do for you except, except there's one, one, one potential remedy. And you're like, what do you mean? Is there no hope for me? He's like, well, I, I guess there really isn't, except there's this, of course, this one remedy. In fact, it's, if, if you actually followed through with it, it you'd actually be 100% cured. How would you respond to that doctor? Would you say, come on, doc, listen, man, you're kind of boring me. My phone's blowing up. I got a lot of messages, and, you know, I've got my favorite sitcom that starts in 15 minutes. I never miss, man. I'm a man of character and consistency, and I got to get there. Would you respond that way? Okay, some of you are like, well, I don't know. Okay, would you respond by saying, really? Well, you know what? I, I want you to know that you're entitled to your opinion. I do appreciate it. I, I'm sure you feel better about yourself, kind of telling me about your opinion and, and what you think that I should do. But, you know, I'm not into this psychological blackmail here. But thank you very much. But I want you to just keep your opinion to yourself. You could respond that way. But if you are sane... Even if you are 50% kind of mentally stable, you would say, absolutely, I need to know, and you need to tell me now. In fact, I'm not leaving here. I'm dropping everything until I know, and we follow through with this. Now, when we come to Romans, the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through what we saw through last week, chapter 3, verse 20, it is like God's MRI on humanity, And if you look at chapter 3, verse 9, just by way of review, he gives the diagnosis, and that is that every single person is under sin. It literally means that we have been dominated by sin. We cannot help the fact that we've got, we're a slave to sin. Sin is like a taskmaster, and it owns us. It explains so much of our behavior. We're all under sin. That's the diagnosis. And the symptoms, like we saw last week, it shows up in our character, shows up in our conversations, right? It even shows up in our conduct, our behavior, how we actually function. All of this are indicators, they're symptoms of the fact that you and I are sinners by nature, and that leads to our condition, chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, where he says, all are under condemnation, and all of us are accountable to God. So this is the question. How does God bring people into a right relationship with himself. How does he do it? And I will tell you that you will find it if you look at chapter 3, verse 21, and this is the passage we're going to look at today. He says, he actually tells it. If you want to know how God does it, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now, when you see the word righteousness, you're like, "Mm okay, what does that mean? We do know that we're made right with God, and he reveals how it's done through his righteousness. But what does that word mean? And it literally means to have a right standing with God for those who believe in Christ. And and so to be righteous is to actually be right with God, to have a right standing. But it's not only the act, it also speaks of the action by which God secures our salvation. It's the act by which God demonstrates that he's righteous by actually bringing us into right relationship with Christ. And so 
you need to understand that righteousness, it is from God, that God alone can provide this. Now, when you and I, we hear the gospel, and oftentimes people present it this way, that they just say, Jesus died and paid the penalty for your sins, and if you believe in him, you can, you can be forgiven. You ever hear that? Yeah, like that came out of my mouth, right? But that's really only half the gospel. God not only uh, saves us from our sin, he forgives us, but he actually bestows upon us his righteousness. So it's not like he's only wiped the slate clean. He actually has given us the very righteousness of Christ. He lived a perfect righteous life, and that is actually imputed and credited to our account. It's like not only is our slate wiped clean, but that he's actually treats us like by giving us the Congressional Medal of Honor and making us treated like a hero. And like we have been received the Nobel Peace Prize, we have like the greatest of accolades. We actually have the righteousness of Christ that has been transferred to our account, and he always sees us in Christ. So it's not only a righteousness from God, but it's a righteousness done by God. It is the act by which God takes a sinful humanity and brings them into relationship with himself. This is the heart of the gospel. And really, it is the theme of the book of Romans. So just to kind of review, as we've been making our way through the book, the theme of the book of Romans is the transferring power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. And as we've seen, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, talks about exaltation. And that is the glory of Christ and his gospel. And he just talks about how awesome it is. Beginning in verse 18 in chapter 1, all the way through 320, though, we have condemnation. You've got to understand just how bad off you and I are if we're ever going to truly appreciate and know the gospel. And so he actually talks about our great need. But that brings us to the turning point that we're at today. Verse 21, you ought to have a mark there. Because this is, explains justification, and it's the gift of God's righteousness through the gospel. And then you're going to find that in, all the way through chapter 5, and then chapter 6, 7, and 8 talked about sanctification. What does it mean to grow and be set apart to God? What does that process look like? That's what's covered there. And then you've got the question about how does God actually deal with the Jews, his people? That's chapters 9, 10, and 11 when you have restoration. And then finally you get to chapter 12, and you have transformation all the way through 16, what does it look like to develop a lifestyle that truly knows Christ and believes the gospel? But when you come to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, you are coming to perhaps the most important paragraph that has ever been written. Because in it, God fully displays all that's entailed with us truly being made right with him. So how does God do it? How does God really make a person right with him? Well, I just want to point out as we're going to walk through this text exactly how he does it. And it starts off in verse 21 by showing from the scriptures what is entailed in this masterpiece. And literally, it is a masterpiece when you look at salvation. Look at verse 21. He says, but now apart from the law, apart from you and I, following and obeying God's law, specifically talking about the Old Testament scriptures, God has manifested his righteousness. You see that in verse 21? The righteousness of God has been manifested. And notice what happened. He actually has witnessed by the law and the prophets. God in his word has told us what righteousness is going to look like, and he's done it through his word. 
Now, you actually see this by witness by the law and the prophets, meaning that all the different like sacrifices, they are foretelling what has to take place for God to literally make humanity right with him. So you not only have sacrifices, you also have types, but you also have prophecies that God is going to do this, and it even tells us how he's going to do this. So for instance, all the way back at the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, do you remember what takes place? God says after Adam and Eve sinned, and all of humanity is plunged into sin, God says this in Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking between Satan and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, speaking that Satan is going to cause havoc. But he goes, And you shall bruise him on the heel. So Satan, excuse me, Satan is going to be crushed. His head's going to be crushed. But, his, but Satan is going to wreak havoc. He will bruise you on the heel. But all of this is speaking that there is one coming from the seed of woman who is actually going to deal with our sin. And it's prophesied throughout the scriptures. So when you come to like the book of Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 53, it says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. So 700 years prior to the coming of Christ, you've got prophecies that there's going to be one who's going to be pierced through for our transgressions. All of this shows you that God is going to make humanity right with himself and he shows us through the law and the prophets. So when you come to Judaism, Christianity isn't a contradiction of Judaism. It's actually a fulfillment of Judaism. So let me show you something else. How does God really make a person right with him? He also does this by showing those who have, saving those who have faith in Christ alone. You actually have to believe in Christ. So look what he says in verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You have to have faith, but it's not just faith in general. And that's how we like to talk about it. Like, this is a person of faith, or they really believe. Actually, you have to have faith in Christ and what he's accomplished. Do you see that in verse 22? If you're going to receive God's righteousness, you have to believe in Christ. So faith, it's kind of like Faith is like a cable to the receiver in your TV. It transmits the signal. But when you see what's taking place on the screen, you know that there was a cable that actually transmitted that signal. That's what faith is. It's not faith in faith itself. It's faith in Christ and all that he's accomplished. And if you are going to experience God's salvation, you must believe in Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you something else about how does God really make a person right with him. And now we're going to really get at the heart of this passage. It, you're going to find this beginning in verse 23, that he does this by securing those who are trusting in Christ in the finished work of what Christ did on the cross. Look at verse 23. I'm going to show you three key concepts to help us understand how does God really make a person right with him. It's kind of like this. We're we're going to open up the inside of the clock. We see that the clock, we can learn and tell time, but now we're going to open it up and see what really took place. How did God really do it? There's three key concepts you need to understand. But it begins by telling us our condition. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark. That's what sin means. You and I were created by divine design to know God, to worship him, to find our security and our identity in him. 
That's what we're made to do. But all of us are selfish and sinful by nature. When we think of sin, we think of some of the like, major things like, man, those, I, I cannot believe that I did that or I said that or I've been thinking these thoughts. But in actuality, sin it entails everything about us that misses the mark of exalting God. It's a lot of the things that you hardly ever even think about, but are, they're daily manifest, manifestations in our lives. God says, for all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. You and I were created in God's image. We were created to reflect his image to humanity. We were created to worship God, but we've missed it. And so how does God take sinful people like you and I and really bring us into right relationship with himself? I want you to notice the very first key concept, and that is justification. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace. Now, the word justification, it means God's judicial act of declaring a believer righteous. It refers to the fact that, it, that God has redeemed us through the work of Christ and through his resurrection, and that when we believe, we are declared right. It's not only an acquittal of all of our sin, but it is actually the provision of God's righteous status that is actually given to us in Christ. Okay, so what happened is our sin, all of our, the penalty, then the wages of sin is what? Death. That is actually imputed on Christ and Christ's perfect life. So God the Son enters into humanity. He lives a perfect life. He fulfills all the law's demands, and then he dies as a sacrificial lamb and rises again. Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed on our account, even though we are terrible sinners. That's justification. Justification is not like you sometimes hear, even on the radio, just as if I never sinned. You ever heard that? Justification is just as if I've never sinned. Actually, that doesn't even go far enough. It's not that we, it's like we're treated like our sins have been acquitted or wiped away. In reality, that is true, but the actual righteousness of Christ has actually been placed on our account. He sees us as united with him, and he loves us. Now, this goes against the grain of how you and I think. We want to do something. We want a law to follow. We want to somehow maintain the idea that we can keep God happy by doing certain things. And there's a lot of people that are trying to earn salvation, and there are plenty more that are trying to keep their salvation by keeping God happy by following rules, okay? And you can go to churches, and they can give you a whole list of rules and expectations of what you're supposed to do. But you need to understand, as the text says, we are justified as a what? Gift by his grace. You don't pay back people for the birthday presents they gave you, do you? Hope not. That doesn't work that way. It's a gift by grace. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan was uh, trying to talk with some coal miners about this idea that you and I are justified freely by God's grace if we will believe in Christ. And this one guy's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You always got to work for it. And, man, he's like, Morgan's thinking, like, these guys, they just don't get it. And then he's like, you know, let me ask you a question. How did you get into that mine today? And I like, oh, that's real easy. We hopped in this elevator, and it took us all the way down. It took us, takes us down to the heart of the earth. And Morgan goes, really? Was that a pretty costly trip? Did that cost you a lot to go down to the heart of the mine? Well, no, it, was, no, it didn't cost us anything. I will tell you something, it cost our company a lot of money to build that elevator to get to that mine. 
And he says, that's exactly what God has done. You and I, to truly be made right with God, it doesn't cost you anything. You believe in the work of Christ. But let me assure you, it is very costly. It cost God his son, his son's death, so that you and I could be made right with him. Justification, that's, it's not just as if we've never sinned. Actually, he cleanses from our sins, and he gives us the very righteousness of God, and we receive it by faith and by grace. That's the first key term that you need to understand. If you're really going to understand how God secures his people, it's justification. Let me give you the second word, and you also find it in verse 24, and that is redemption. Look at it. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means to pay a purchase price in order to release another person from bondage or from some sort of significant danger. That's what redemption means. Now, redemption was a very common term that was used in New Testament times. It was, it was used in the context of slavery, okay? So you had all these slaves in the Roman Empire, many of which became slaves because they had been captured in wars, okay? So when you overtook a people group or overtook some sort of country, you just enslave a lot of people, okay? And they were slaves. But there was another way that was commonly found in which people became slaves, and that is that they borrowed money and they couldn't pay it back. And so what would happen is, if you couldn't pay it back and you needed to, you would become what is called an indentured servant. You'd literally go find someone who had wealth, and you would say, I will become your slave if you will pay off my debt. And based on the size of the debt was how long you would be a slave. And you literally belonged to that master. Now, if the master decided, like, you know what? I need some cash. I'm liquidating you. They would. And then you were stuck. You were always at the mercy of the master. Now, if there was someone that was extremely unimaginably kind, they could buy a slave out of the slave market or perhaps from an, a, a slaveholder, a man or a woman, they could buy that individual and then they could actually release them to their freedom. And that is what God has done. That is the word redeem. Sin has a price. It's death. Someone has to redeem us. It is Christ. And that's exactly what Christ has done. That's what redemption is. Now, we need a redeemer. And there's a lot of theories that are out there about, okay, what did Christ do and how did he redeem us? And, and church history has a very famous one in its early years that, that the ransom was actually paid to the devil, okay? That this payment that needed for mankind's sins was actually paid to the devil. But actually, that's not true. Who, who actually needs to be purchased and has to purchase us? It has to be God. Who is the one who's been offended? It is God himself. And so that ransom, it's paid to God, for it is God whom we're in debt to. Now, when we talk about redemption, the people of Israel had a very clear picture of this. When you say the word redemption, they would think about the exodus. You remember in the Old Testament, and you find this in Exodus 12 through 15, Israel was enslaved to the Egyptians, right? And God said, I want my people released. And so there was a series of judgments in the very final one, judgments not only on the people of Egypt, but also on Egyptians' gods. 
And the final one was God said, I want you to take a lamb and I want you to slaughter it. I want you to take that blood. I want you to put it on the doorpost and the lentil of your door because the angel of death is going to come and the firstborn of every family is going to die unless you take me at my word and that blood is applied to your house, specifically on those doorposts. Well, the Israel people, Israelites, man, they're believing God at this point. The Egyptians should have been. Look at all the other previous judgments. Like, that's, that is ridiculous. Come on. We're not doing that. And guess what happened? They lost their firstborn. But it, that was the miracle in which it, the Egyptians and Pharaoh finally said, go, get out of here, and they were released. When you talk to the people of Israel, when you talk about redemption, that was the picture. God had redeemed his people out of slavery, and he set them free. And that's how they referred to it in their history. And so when you come to redemption... God provides it in Christ, and he redeems us not only from the penalty of sin, but you're going to find, especially in Romans 6, from the very power of sin. Let me give you the, other, the third key concept. If you're really going to understand, how did God do this? How did he secure right relationship with himself with a sinful humanity? You got justification, you got redemption, and let me give you the third word that you're probably not very familiar with, and that is the word propitiation. You're going to find it in verses 25 and following here, but look what he says, verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So when God is redeeming his people, he does so publicly through the propitiation in Christ's blood through faith. Now, what does that word propitiation mean? It literally means the appeasement of judgment and wrath through the offering of a sacrifice. Okay, so God demands that justice be satisfied, so he provides Christ to satisfy God's judgment, and he also cancels a sinner's guilt. So when you said the word propitiation, to satisfy wrath, the Jewish people, they knew exactly what this meant. In fact, their highest holy day, the Day of Atonement, do you guys know what the Day of Atonement was, what they did? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is the day in which the high priest would enter into the tabernacle and then later the temple. It was once a year he went into what's called the Holy of Holies, okay? This is a specially marked off area, and he would go in. They had this incense burning, a very specific type of incense, and the high priest would go in. First of all, he would sacrifice a bull for his sins and the sins of his family, a symbolic covering. So he would then take that blood, and he would go in to the actual... Holy, of holy places, and you would actually have this tabernacle, and, and there would be this golden wing cherubim, okay? And there was the Ark of the Covenant, and what he would do is he'd literally sprinkle seven times blood onto that to symbolize that God was actually going to, to actually be satisfied with the sacrifice. But then after that, they had these two goats. One would be the scapegoat and sent away. The other, though, was sacrificed And for all the sins of the people that had never even considered some of their sins, this goat was sacrificed, and once again, seven times, blood was sprinkled on this. Inside the ark, inside that, were the tablets that God had given Moses, the law, the Ten Commandments. And it symbolized that there was a payment for these sins. Now, it comes through blood. Notice what he said here, verse 25, God displayed publicly This was done in the tent. No one could see it. It was all covered up. It was veiled. 
But when God had his son sacrificed as the propitiation, he did it publicly. He did it on a cross. He did it for the whole world to see. In fact, it is still seen. You see crosses everywhere. It is to show you God propitiated. He satisfied his just wrath against sin, and he did so when he had his son nailed to the cross, and he willingly went. And so that's why he says, verse 25, God displayed publicly as a propitiation his blood through faith. And he's doing this, it's, it's all accomplished through his blood. Now, one guy I read about said, well, what if, what if Christ had actually just kind of pricked his finger and, and he had some blood that came from his finger? Would that satisfy God's wrath just because he was bleeding? Actually, when you look at blood used in the New Testament, when it speaks of Christ, it speaks of his, his death, specifically his sacrificial death. He had to die in a way in which he would bleed. But it's not just just the blood itself, so much as it speaks of his sacrificial death. He made propitiation. It's not just expiation where you just wipe away the wrongdoing. It's propitiation where God literally satisfies his just wrath against sin. And I want you to see where this all focuses in. It focuses on the cross. If you want to see God's justice and his love manifested in fullest measure... All you need to do is look at the cross in which Christ gives himself. It's the fullest manifestation of God's justice, and it's the full manifestation of his love. And so going back to the text here, once you understand propitiation, look what he says in verse 25. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. All the Old Testament sacrifices, what God did is he literally postponed punishment. They were symbolic, but they were pointing to an ultimate sacrifice in which God would truly satisfy his justice. And so that's why he says in the forbearance or the patience of God, verse 25, he passed over the sins previously committed. If those sins had really literally been atoned for through the sacrifice of the goat or the animal or the dove— then there wouldn't be a payment for them, would there? They'd be truly paid for. But actually, it points to this true one sacrificial lamb that would once for all truly forgive sins. And that's why he says he passed over, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. But he also says in verse 26, but for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God was going to be the one who is just to provide a sacrifice, but he is going to be the justifier in that God himself would send his son, and he literally placed justice upon himself. He becomes the payment. I'll tell you, whether this is new for you, or you've actually like heard this for a while, this is absolutely fascinating. And when we actually enter into eternity, I believe we'll spend eternity worshiping God when we fully understand just what's entailed with like propitiation, redemption, and justification. It's kind of like this. God employs several different um, aspects of language to help us understand all that was accomplished with Christ. He uses the law court when he talks about justification. He uses the slave market when he talks about the redemption that we have in Christ. And he uses the altar when he talks about propitiation or atoning sacrifice. All of this is found 
in Christ. So how does God really make a person right with himself? Well, he does it by securing us through the finished work of Christ. I hope this sinks in. I had a guy after first service say, you know what? I'd had this passage marked in my Bible, but I never really understood it. Let your mind and your heart grasp these truths. Think about them because this results in worship in our life when we realize we have a God who loves us like this. How does God really make a person right with him? Well, it's just like we've outlined, but there's just one other thing that you need to know. He silences boasting in human effort. You cannot talk about what you've done or how good you've been or what kind of behavior you've had in terms of God's law. Look at verse 27 and following. He says, where then is boasting? Where is it? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. And here he's kind of having a play, a word play on the word law, which would mean standard. There's no boasting in your ability to keep the law. Actually, your boasting is only in Christ. And it's, the standard is faith. He says in verse 28, and here is the clearest presentation in one verse about what justification really is. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You know, what a person boasts in, that tells you about where they find their identity, their security, their purpose, and their peace. We're not boasting in how good we are or what kind of behavior patterns we've got or how many times we've read our Bible. We're boasting in Christ. And it doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your religious background, where you came from, whether you're a Jew or you're a non-Jew, you're a Gentile. Look what he says in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. There's only one way we're made right with God, and that is by believing in Christ. You've got to have your faith in him. You know, it's kind of like a lot of folks, they feel like, man, I'm okay. It's kind of like a drowning man, and he's, he's clutching money. He's like, hey, don't worry about me. I got money. Well, if that isn't going to help you. It doesn't matter what kind of $100 bills you've got in your hand. If you're drowning, those things don't help. And you need to know something. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, whatever you're holding on to will not help you. You're still under condemnation. You will face judgment for your sins. That isn't just like, well, we'll see. No, that's why I'm up here pleading for your soul and your heart. You can't face it. You don't want to face it. And you don't have to because Christ has paid the penalty in our place. And he's risen again. And if you will believe, you can have forgiveness. You can have life. You could, like Paul says, you know, I'm not going to boast in anything but in Christ because when you see Jesus for who he is and all that he's done, you cannot help but to worship and to find rejoicing in him. And so he says in verse 31, well, you know, if, you're, if that's all true, then verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? Does the law go away because we're believing? Paul says, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. You see, the law... It shows us that we're sinners, right? It tells us how to live, and we can't. 
But the law also, what it does is it leads us to Christ. It shows us God's character. It gives us moral instruction for life. But it also points us to Christ and shows us how much we need him. Even with the ceremonial and the theocratic rule of the law, it's all been fulfilled in Christ. But the law still has a great purpose in the life of a person. It shows us our need for Christ. It points us to Christ. It shows us God's moral character. And it tells us this is what it looks like to live. And this is what God is like. There is a legend that is told uh, among the... uh, This is a legend that's been carried over from these nomadic tribes that used to run around Russia. And this particular uh, tribe had this one leader who was extremely strong, and he was also known to be brilliant and a very just man. And so there was a situation that had developed in the tribe where someone was actually stealing stuff, and it created a lot of disruption in the community. And so this very wise and strong chief said, listen, Whoever's doing this, they're going to face 10 lashes from their tribal whipmaster, who apparently was vicious. Well, that'd be a pretty serious penalty. But the thefts continued. And the, and the, uh, the tribal chief, this guy, just like, man, I'm going to keep up in this. And so he finally got to a place where it was up to 40 lashes by their tribal whipmaster. And no one, apart from the chief, could ever take a beating like that. And so they're like, whoa, this is serious. And eventually they found the culprit. Much to the shock of the people in the tribe and even to the chief himself, the person that was doing all the stealing was his frail old mother. She was the one that was stealing the stuff. And so the people were like, what is, what is he going to do? I mean, chief loves his mother. Maybe he's just going to quit her of it. You know, like she's getting old and she didn't fully understand. Is that what she's going to do? On the other hand, there's no way she's going to make 40 lashes. Once that whipmaster gets started on her, she's going to be dead. She'll be dead long before the 40th strike. They're all curious. What is he going to do? And he passed judgment on his mother and said that 40, she receives 40 lashes. And so they apparently tied her up got her on a post. Here's this frail old lady. And the whipmaster, he's got his orders. This is what he does. And he's getting ready to tear her to shreds. And then right before he starts, the chief gets up and he places himself between the whipmaster and his frail old mother who's tied to this post. And he takes the beating in her place. Friends, on a much grander scale, That's what God has done for us. He literally has taken the consequences for our sin and he's laid it upon Christ. And the wages of sin is death. And Christ has paid it, paid it fully in our place that we who believe will never face judgment for sin. God satisfies his judgment by sending his son. And he rose again to give you and I true forgiveness, justification, redemption, propitiation, if we'll simply believe in him. You see, the righteousness of God reveals the riches of his grace, and this is going to lead to eternal worship. Let's pray. Lord, I want to just come before you with the dear people that are gathered in this auditorium this morning. 
And if there is someone who has come here today and has never truly placed their trust in Christ, whether they feel like I just have to check my mind out at the door, which is totally not true, they actually need to believe the facts revealed in his word. Or they have for the first time understood the true penalty for sin and that Christ has paid it in our behalf. Would they simply pray with me and say, God, I, I turn from myself and my sinfulness and my self-centeredness, and I believe. I put my faith and trust in Jesus, who has died and rose again on my behalf. I give you the full control of my life. Lord, change me from the inside out. Thank you for securing my salvation. And for all of us, Lord, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, help us to bask in and deeply think about the joy of knowing him who is our life, who has given his life for ours. For we worship you and we tell you we love you as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.